On this episode of Test Podagogy, my guest is Anders Eriksson, Professor of Psychology at Florida State University and the man behind Deliberate Practice Theory. So Anders, thank you very much for joining me on the uh, Test Podagogy podcast. Um, you are cited very often in education for your deliberate practice and expertise research. Um, I wonder if we could start by you just going through it in your own words, what actually deliberate practice looks like and uh, in, in whatever context it might be applied in. So I think it's maybe easiest to understand this if you look at where we got started in research. We were looking at musicians who were training at an international music academy. And when we analyzed what activities that really seemed to be related to improvement of performance, we found that when a teacher meets with a student and then essentially identifies some training areas and some training exercises, and then the student goes off, monitors that training, and comes back to the teacher, that individualized training we found to be the most effective way of changing performance. And and that, you know, is fundamentally very different from, you know, uh, most ways that classrooms work. Uh, so So basically... That, when a teacher is actually able now to individualize the training and help students identify training tasks that are relevant and then basically also encourage the student to be really motivated and actually putting in the effort of of really changing, that seems to be, uh, that is what we're referring to as deliberate practice. And feedback's crucial to that, isn't it? So knowing in depth where the student is at in their in their current attainment and reacting, giving them fresh goals in reaction to that current attainment. Right, and and also immediate feedback when they're now you know practicing, uh, because often you know students may go off and work on a homework for a couple of weeks, basically not receiving feedback, and and I think having that feedback being almost instantaneous as as you're working on trying to perfect the music piece so you can actually hear when you're deviating that seems to be critical for effective training so sort of ongoing feedback so almost um would you call it hand holding or would you call it uh, constant monitoring or how would you sort of you know is it is it an oppressive sort of um feedback or is it more of a guiding guiding light as such well i i think when students and teachers agree here on what the goal is or what you basically want to be able to do you know then i guess the teacher is just helping the student because it's a student that really needs to change to be able now to reach that high level of performance and the teacher is in some ways just helping the student once they're now trying and perhaps failing finding ways here to help the student understand what they need to do instead of what they were doing uh, when they had problems. Mm. I guess with the music uh example you gave there it would be you know changing the tone the phrasing would you deal with each one of those in turn or would would the feedback be you know this is everything that's wrong at the moment work on x and y or would it be this is one thing that's wrong go and get that right and then come back to me exactly so so i guess the teacher needs to you know see what is it that the student can change that would be on path here of building the performance that you're looking at and I think identifying one or possibly two things, doing more than that, uh, you're actually not now allowing for deliberate practice, which ideally is that you're trying to change one particular aspect 
And once you've been able to master that, you try to integrate and use now that change in, in basically your more generalized performance, and then you move on to the next aspect. And that, that obviously requires a great degree of willing from the student, but a, a great deal of expertise in teaching from the teacher. I mean, they need to know how to identify those, those problems and sort of communicate the, the learning goals in a, in a way that they know the child or, or, or student will react to, I guess. Yeah, and, and I think that is a key uh, with a very successful teacher is somebody who will be able to talk to the students to try to figure out what is it that they're thinking and, and how would you be able to help them think in a different way that would not be associated with a better overall performance. Does that require not just a knowledge of where the child is at then, but that child's individual disposition. I mean, if they're quite a fiery child or, or you have a good knowledge of where they're at in their home life, would, would that be tailoring that feedback? Or does the feedback tend to be quite static in terms of how it's delivered? Well, I think one thing with most of the students that go on to advanced study in music is that they're really motivated. They actually see what they want to eventually be able to do. And I think that's maybe one of the challenges of general education today is that some students don't really see, you know, how mastering this particular task or, or, or uh, subject matter, how that actually in some ways prepares them for success as adults. Mm. And, and, and I think in music you can actually point to people who are professionals performing the same piece that you're performing and in some ways now see what the discrepancy is. I think that's less clear when it comes to general education. And, and I've been <clears throat> talking to some basically uh, private schools where they are starting out to do more project-based learning, where you're in some ways are really putting students engaged now in activities that make contact with something that's outside of the school environment and part of professional life. And I think once you're able now to help students be motivated, and I think they can be motivated by the task, they can also often be motivated by wanting to help the teacher, you know, basically make them feel like they're performing well for the teacher. Right. I think there's a whole range of motivational issues that needs more attention than it typically gets. And I think the best teachers are those who can actually in some ways, you know, engage the student and also lead them to a point here where they at least have the sense here that they understand what they're doing and have a sense here of how this possibly may be related to some of their kind of adult professional interests or basically leisure interests. Is that motivation research not really there at the moment? I mean, I've, I've chatted to Carol Dweck about this, and she said that there, were, there was there was quite a dearth of motivation research around, like because it's so complex, we don't really, and so many variables in what drives motivation, it's quite a, a difficult area to look at. Yeah, I, I think what we did was we did not like uh, this kind of more personality test assessment of motivation, where you're agreeing or disagreeing with statements. So what we did was to actually identify what is that activity that seems to be, you know, the most effective in improving music performance or chess performance or whatever, and then basically use the degree to which students and, and participants and individuals 
decide to engage in that activity as sort of a measure of their commitment to improving. So if you're looking at something like going out jogging, you know, which may be relaxing and enjoying, but if you really want to improve your running speed, you actually now have to engage in, you know, interval training where you sprint maximally and then walk for a bit, sprint. So you're really pushing the body to actually adapt and thereby allowing you eventually to increase the speed of your running performance. And um, I guess... The examples like the running and the music example, these are sort of uh, areas where you, you typically get a one-to-one or one-to-two maybe relationship between a music teacher and, and their student or a, or a personal trainer and a runner. Is the closest sort of uh, comparison to that in education, the sort of personalised learning thing, uh, programmes we're seeing in some of the US high schools where, you know, it's an AI-enabled computer system which will sort of guides an individual student's path. I mean, is that the, the closest you can sort of get to that rather than a teacher stood in front of 30 children, say, in a typical classroom? Well, you know, I, I, I think by designing learning environments, and I, I think that AI and, and all sorts of computer, you know, maybe with videos and other ways to really reach outside of the classroom and now provide basically the students with a direct connection here with something that you know, seems to make a lot of sense and meaning to them. And and I think that the teacher then would be more like a music teacher. You know, the music teacher is really not working, you know, eight hours a day with the students. In fact, when they start, they may be, the students are help with their parents to spend 15, 20 minutes per day. But, you know, there's more like a weekly interaction now with the teacher, which I think encourages the development here of this self-regulated learning where the student actually has an idea what they're supposed to be mastering and will be able to evaluate their own performance with the help of the training task, which may be, you know, an AI program that can give you basically immediate feedback. Mm. And is it, you know, you've obviously watched from afar as deliberate practice has been sort of adopted in schools. Do you think it's adopted in a sort of consistent way? Do you think it's been adopted in a, in a way that accurately reflects your research? I think there's a lot of people talking about, you know, how one might be able to adapt it. And, and one of the things that I find interesting is this idea that if you can help students get that firsthand experience of what is involved when you really excel at something, whether it's sports, music, dance, chess, whatever, because I think that gives that student a sense here of what are the opportunities and what's effective training, and basically how would I be able to apply the same principles to mastering some other kind of activity, and obviously eventually when you select a profession, how would I be able to kind of keep improving in this profession, and what are the most effective ways that I can actually measure my own performance, get feedback, interact possibly with teachers or more advanced individuals who would be able to kind of help you see the path by which you would be able to reach a higher level of performance. That's interesting. So if you had a, a student perhaps who was, who was struggling, I mean, focusing on something they were interested in, getting them into the sort of habit of mind of this sort of deliberate practice methodology, methodology might have a knock-on effect in them applying the same processes for something like maths or English or history? You know, I, I think that's 
very interesting, and I don't know that except for these private schools where they allow the students to actually have that and provide external support where they can have individualized teachers, that that's yet very uh, uh, accepted or, or, or uh, kind of tried out. Mm. But, but I, I agree exactly that, that finding that kind of place where the student is now really feeling that they're successful because they're given the right kind of support with the teacher to really see how their performance is improved. Now that <clears throat> is something that I don't know how we would be able to do, but, but I can see here that in, you know, providing these uh, internet resources should be able to allow one now to get that you know, relevant experience that more directly translates now so the student really finds here that they can now do things that they couldn't do before. And the nature of expertise is obviously an interesting one. I mean, do you think that someone can be expert, whatever definition that might be, in multiple things? Do people tend to be expert in one one aspect? I mean, you obviously get the famous uh, polymaths, as it were, but in general, do we tend to excel in, in one area? Well, I, I think if you're going to excel, uh, maybe start with one area, and then once you get interested in something else, uh, you've already now accrued, I think, a lot of general experience here about how to improve, and then you can apply those ideas into another area. And I think that's when I see people who have reached a high level, maybe not world-class level, because that seems to be rare that you do that in several domains simultaneously. Uh, but I think, you know, the focus should probably be on improving performance rather than, you know, basically who's going to be the single gold medal winner at the Olympic Games, tw mm -hmm. uh, you know, three years or whatever from now. I guess that's where your your work might be uh, misconstrued slightly in, in that it's about creating experts, whereas actually, as, as you explain, it's about creating improvement, uh, efficient improvements in performance, which is it's a slightly different end goal in mind, I guess. Yeah, you know, getting somebody to the point here, like if you're a musician, where you can sit down at the piano and almost play and create a musical experience for yourself that you really enjoy. When you've developed those kinds of representations here that you're in control and you can actually generate new things, that getting contact with that kind of motivational uh, uh, stimuli, I think it's really key. And, and that's, you don't have to be world-class to be able to reach that level, but there are teachers who can actually help the students get to the point here where they can you know, really listen and enjoy the music that they're making. And that seems to be critical if you want to be very good at uh, as an instrumental musician. Mm. And so is that a, a, a process where it requires quite a lot of autonomy or freedom for a student? I mean, it sounds like uh, a really dictatorial approach where you're forcing a student to, to do certain things might, might not be the best way of getting <clears throat> them to that point. Exactly. And, and I think, you know, by actually trying to push students to practice for longer than they really are able to concentrate. So I think the more that you can be sensitive to the student and actually limiting the amount of time where you're really trying to pushing yourself to go beyond what you currently can do, that's really key. And I think also 
helping the student take responsibility for the practice so they are more in control for how long and, and so on. You know, also in some ways allows the student now to maximize sort of basically the effect that they can get and not basically try to keep practicing when you're more or less thinking about something else, which I think is a waste uh, for both the student and the parents and the teachers and everyone. That has quite big implications, obviously, for homework. You know, you, you must you, here's an hour of homework per week, for example. Well, maybe it should be here's the task. So you, you decide the length of time it's going to take you, and you you perhaps even decide the task. I, I don't know, but um, is that sort of where you're heading in that? In that? I, you know, I, I think that's a really interesting direction. And and if you actually were working, say, with a computer program or or something that could give you some kind of feedback. So you were actually exploring, but in control here of your sort of discovery uh, path. So, so basically providing those environments that would allow individuals to develop mental representations here about expecting what things would happen and then be able to actually try it out and then <clears throat> you know, interactively develop your and improve your expectations here an understanding of the situation you're working with. And I guess it, we, we, another issue at the moment in terms of research like yours, and I've spoken to quite a few people about this, is the is this replication uh, hunt, if you like it, or replication crusade that's going on at the moment in terms of, you know, theories are being uh, sort of criticised or, or even rubbished because of uh, failure to replicate. And I've t- spoken to you about this before, about the idea that some of these replications aren't actually accurately replicating the original research. Is, is that a, a problem you're experiencing at the moment in terms of some of the criticisms you've received or Carol Dweck's received or Amy Cuddy's the most high-profile <clears throat> casualty, I think, of this at the moment? Well, you know, I, I think our research has focused in on objective, big performance differences as the sort of the starting point of our research. Mm. So if if we're really interested in helping students, we would identify students who've been able to acquire, you know, abilities to do X, Y, and Z, and then actually start to study how they're different from other students who are less competent, and then basically what is the path that led these students to become as successful as they did. So I don't know that there's basically any issues in my case, I think some people have misinterpreted what we're calling deliberate practice and then basically, you know, do, done analysis where they're pooling together basically individuals who are just playing games like chess games or playing soccer games or, you know, <clears throat> even basically group activities equated that with the individualized training that we refer to as purposeful practice and and when it's guided by a teacher you know we would call it deliberate practice mm. do you think as well that in in the way that your research is 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 sort of viewed i mean i understand you're working with um angela duckworth at the moment on 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 this sort of problem of of uh transferring research into into classrooms or curriculums i mean what what's what's the work you're doing there well you know, I think one of the key is how would we be able to objectively define what a good teacher is? Mm. And and in the discussions that I had with Angela, we basically said, well, you know, at least one feature is 
a teacher who can actually help their students during the school year improve their performance as measured by whatever test that you consider to be a valid test here, what they should be mastering. Teachers who can improve their students, you know, maybe by one or two standard deviations more than somebody else, must be doing something that is interesting and potentially relevant here. If we could put our finger on what they're doing, you know, we might be able to help other teachers, you know, improve their outcomes with their students. So that's kind of the approach that we've taken and, and, and started out with. And I guess I, it's a little unclear exactly now whether <clears throat> Angela will have time here to kind of be in charge of, of, of basically that project. But, you know, time will tell. <clears throat> do you think, uh, do you have any expectations about what that might show? Would you be quite uh, surprised if there was one method that all those teachers shared? Or would you expect it to be quite a, is it a case that the right teacher with the right method is the might that is is the is the optimum performer, if you like, so the right match between pedagogy and, and person. Well, there is some research that has used this methodology on on a sort of a smaller sample, and what one of the interesting things that they found was that when they contrasted the high added value teachers, those with a more improvement for their students to other teachers, they found that these teachers, if they were watching videos we're more able to identify potential problems where somebody is, you know, kind of losing engagement with a task, so they would be able to intervene before that student starts maybe interacting with their neighbor and, and you basically have now a larger disturbance. Mm. I personally also think that teachers who establish this bond and contact with their students which basically I think generates in the students this sense here that, you know, they, they want to, the teacher is really engaged here in helping me get better at this. Uh, so it's up to me to really do my part. And, and that I think is another more general factor that, and I also I think that we talked earlier about some teachers being far better at diagnosing what the kind of misconception a student has, you know, would be another factor. But it's probably going to be a lot, you know, like <clears throat> most activities, you know, there's a lot of things that you can kind of improve. And, and if you're getting good feedback, you know, you may have a career to actually keep improving that. I mean, that's the uh, final question, I guess, is that we talk a lot about deliberate practice being used to make students expert or improve their performance is this something teachers should be looking at as well to create to make themselves expert teachers should they be adopting you know finding a mentor to give them that that feedback and using deliberate practice themselves to to become better at teaching well you know that 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 was the goal here of, of basically the discussion that Angela for her project she was kind of interested in you know how would we be able to if we use now this student impact score as an indicator, you know, how would we be able to give feedback to teachers such that they could modify now their ability to diagnose problems uh, that students have or basically being able to be more able here to kind of engage the students and, and notice here when students are losing, uh, you know, their engagement in the task. So, so basically, I think 
looking at it as a system where the teacher is kind of like the coach and, and you know, the success of the team is basically the outcome that both the teacher and the students are engaged in to try to maximize. Vincent, do you think, and obviously this, these, are, these are very, these are aims that people have been trying to get to for, for, for generations. I mean, are you hopeful that at some point we'll get answers to some of these questions about what makes a great teacher? I, I think one of the issues that I see is that once we can have tests that in some ways test the understanding that I think is one of the key aspects that really helps a student learn something in school that they can then apply as adults. Once we have tests that are more sensitive to that, then I think we can now start applying those tests and see what are the teachers, and what do they do to help their students actually improve and get to that type of mastery. Excellent. Well, thank you very much, Anders, for your time today. Okay. It was great talking to you.